Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a kid from St. Louis who, as a teenager, worked as an usher at Bush Stadium and from his position in the bleachers would practice calling the game while listening to a legendary Hall of Famer. But here's the thing about Jack Buck, which I've never heard anybody say about any other announcer. He was so subtle with his humor and some of the different things he did that every night when he signed off after the scoreboard show, you were sad. He left you wanting more, and you couldn't wait to tune in the next night to see what Jack was going to lay on you that night. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, writers, broadcasters about their lives around baseball. From the sand lots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is Bob Carpenter, a veteran of 16 years with ESPN and in his 15th season with the Washington Nationals. Thanks, Bob, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Thanks, John. Uh, good to talk to you and uh, hear those dulcet tones of yours. Absolutely. Bob Carpenter is a two-time St. Louis Area Emmy Award winner. He's been nominated for six Emmys overall. He's been with the Nationals since 2006. He called games for the Cardinals. I believe that might have even been twice. For the Mets, the Twins, the Rangers, 16 years with ESPN. And Bob is inducted into the Oklahoma Association Broadcasters Hall of Fame. So I got one question to ask you. Are you wearing your world championship ring right now? Well, actually, uh, during the offseason, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I have an apartment that I keep in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, I don't have an alarm system here, uh-huh. so unless I wanted to wear that thing 24-7, it would probably tear my rotator cuff. It's so big and heavy. <laughs> so it, it's back home under lock and key 1,200 wow. miles from here. I, I'd like to wear it around. If our fans were around and I could show it to people and let them have some fun with it, John, maybe I would have brought it with me, but I'm not real pretentious about wearing stuff like that around. Very proud of the ring. Very thankful that the Lerner family would include me on the list to get that. But uh, it's not with me right now because I just didn't feel that safe about bringing it up here. And besides that, I had to choose between my ring and my backpack. So I chose the backpack. <laughs> Either is the same weight. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, in some cases, the ring's heavier. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So is this your first world championship ring? It's my first world championship ring. I got a ring with the Cardinals who were National League champions uh-huh. in 2004. And I, and I think maybe some people don't know this. You get a ring even if you go to the World Series. It just doesn't say world champions. Right. Now, I'm assuming that all clubs do that. The Cardinals did it. So I got a, a beautiful ring with a red ruby cardinal right in the middle of a bunch of diamonds back in 2004. That team won 105 games and uh, ran through, I think, the Dodgers and the Padres in the playoffs and then ran into the, I guess you would call it, Destiny Destiny Ball Club in Boston. The Red Sox broke their curse. They swept the Cardinals four games in a row in that series. So not exactly a classic World Series. The Cardinals just didn't hit other than game one. uh, but, But a very nice keepsake of a great season. That, uh, you know, with a ball club that wins 105 games, and that's something that doesn't happen every year. Well, before we get into the Nationals, and of course there's such an amazing story to tell with all that's happened since the last game of the World Series, you, you mentioned the Cardinals, and your first year with the Cardinals was 1984, and you were in the booth with Jack Buck. Tell me about yeah. working with Jack Buck. Well, I had met Jack a few times. I'd been around the ballpark for a number of years, 
because I had an older sister who went to work for the Cardinals in 1967. So I got to know Jack and Mike Shannon a little bit, uh, the tandem on radio. This was after the days of Harry Carey, and that's when the ex-player Mike Shannon stepped in. Mike had to retire because of a medical condition, and uh, they put him on the radio. And, uh, you know, it's kind of raw, and Jack helped him out a lot. But anyway, in 1984, when the Sports Time Cable Network uh, started its short run, and you were in Arlington, of course, a couple of years after that. That's where we met when I was working with the Rangers. So to give you some perspective, Sports Time Cable Network in the Midwest was the equivalent of HSE, Home Sports Entertainment, in Texas, where they were actually doing home games, because and it was on cable, because before that, teams were reluctant to televise home games. They thought it would hurt the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't really have the foresight to know how it would turn out. We're doing home games was actually promoting the product to the extent that people would want to come to the ballpark and uh, come more often. So sports time cable, they hired me to do TV play by play. They hired a veteran guy who'd been around the big leagues for a while. Red rush was his name. So um, I was the primary guy on TV working with Mike Shannon. Mike would be my analyst for innings one through three and seven through nine. And then Every Cardinal fan wanted to hear Jack Buck. So Jack would come over for the middle three innings and do play-by-play. So I'm sitting there, a rookie broadcaster, and I've got to be an analyst for three innings for the great Jack Buck. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, don't say anything stupid. Just keep it basic. Have some lively banter with my, uh, you know, future Hall of Fame partner here. And uh, it went pretty well. And uh, we did 50-some games that year. The only problem was, Anheuser-Busch was footing the bill for that network, and it was budgeted to lose a certain amount of money over a three-year period. They got a little bit too big too soon, and they lost all that money in the very first year. So they signed off. In 1985, I did a handful of games for the Cardinals on radio and on cable TV with another entity that was carrying some games, and things didn't work out for me there. And lo and behold, that's how I ended up with the Texas Rangers. In 1986, they had an opening on TV. And uh, I ended up down in Texas. But working with Jack was great. Uh, you know, I tried to sit there and, uh, you know, not try to duplicate Jack Bucker, not try to imitate Jack. But I wanted to take the best of what he had and maybe make that part of my repertoire. And mm-hmm. I'll be, I'll be kind of brief about this because I could talk about Jack for a while. Sure. But the thing about Jack Buck, he had the great voice. He had a very dry humor. He had a very... I don't know, deliberate delivery, but he knew how to rise with exciting tones to the great moments. But here's the thing about Jack Buck, which I've never heard anybody say about any other announcer. He was so subtle with his humor and some of the different things he did that every night when he signed off after the scoreboard show, he, you were sad. He left you wanting more, mm-hmm. and you couldn't wait to tune in the next night to see what Jack was going to lay on you that night. And, you know, a lot of guys do too much on the air. They just cram too much information into a broadcast on radio or a telecast on TV. And they they can kind of wear you out over a a two-and-a-half to three-hour baseball game. I can honestly say Jack Buck signed off every night, and the listener wanted more. You didn't want the broadcast to end. And to me, that is the ultimate compliment that a guy can have. Well, I have a similar story because I was living in St. Louis in the early 80s, and the, and the, the uh, reaction that I had listening to Jack Buck on the radio was when they would go into a rain delay, 
and he would have yeah. all of his cronies. He would have, you know, Bob built Bob Bragg or Bill Burns or any of his old cronies. Yeah. The rain delay broadcast was fascinating and you didn't want it to end. Those interviews were magical. And, uh, you know, later, um, after a certain amount of time, Mike Shannon kind of duplicated those interviews. He used to have a Saturday night show after the Cardinals played called Live from Shannon's. Mike had his own restaurant downtown. He'd invite opposing players. He'd invite umpires. If the commissioner was down, in town, he'd come by. I mean, celebrities. And they would basically sit there over a couple of beers and a late dinner and and do this great radio yeah. until 11 o'clock or midnight on a Saturday night, uh, depending on how long the game had gone. Now, of course, that was only when the Cardinals were home. So growing up in St. Louis like I did, you heard Harry Carey. You heard Joe Garagiola. Because Joe cut his teeth there before he moved on to NBC and started becoming kind of a national TV jack-of-all-trades on the Today Show and all the other stuff, game shows that Joe did. In fact, I grew up six blocks away from the hill, Elizabeth Avenue, where Joe Garagiola and Yogi Berra grew up. My family name is actually Carpentari, ending in T-A-R-I. So I'm half Italian, and we grew up in the Italian section of St. Louis, and that's where Yogi and, uh, and Joe came out of. So, you know, so you grew up listening to all these guys. Harry Carey comes along, you know, and then Jack after Harry departed, Mike Shannon, uh, you know, and uh, Bob Costas has been in and out of the scene in St. Louis for a number of years. It's a place uh, that's had a lot of great broadcasters. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm proud to say I'm way down on that list, but at least I'm on the list. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had some great broadcasters down through the decades in that great baseball city. Well, and growing up there and being exposed to that kind of well, first of all, St. Louis is just a baseball crazy town that many people don't even understand if they haven't lived there. But the idea that you grew up with those reference points, the, all the people yeah. that you've named, did you decide that you wanted to get into sports broadcasting at an early age? I got a job ushering at the ballpark in 1969. You had to be 16 to work at the ballpark. So as soon as I got out of school in June, I got a job as an usher. And there were nights when I'd be on a ramp up there in center field or somewhere where there weren't a whole lot of people milling around. And, you know, I don't know why I started doing it. Uh, the radio broadcast was piped in throughout the ballpark. But, John, I would stand up on those ramps and watching the pitcher and the catcher and the hitter from probably 500 or 550 feet away, I would start calling some of the games to myself. And, of course, a couple times I'd get caught and people would walk by and, like, this, you know, this kid's talking to himself. But, uh, you know. I was 16 or 17 or 18. I didn't care. And I think that's really when it kind of lit the fire for me uh, to become a broadcaster. I started doing it in college, of course, free, like we all did, or working an overnight shift. I went to UMKC up in Kansas City that had a great broadcasting department, not necessarily a journalism school, but, you know, had really cut my teeth doing soccer and basketball and baseball on the college level. And then, you know, was ready for some opportunities that came along uh, later, I always try to tell young announcers, do whatever you can. Don't say, I'm going to be a major league baseball announcer. You know what? You might end up being a minor league basketball announcer. Mm-hmm. You just never know. You, you know what it's like in this business. Sure. When you absolutely know that it's the right job for you, that's the one you don't get. Mm-hmm. And then when you're kind of frustrated and you just don't think anything's going to happen, something comes out of the blue, you get an opportunity, and you jump head first right into it. it I don't. I don't know why. I don't know how that happens. It's just the nature of the business. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of a crazy thing. But, uh, you know, growing up in St. Louis had a lot of influence on me. 
And then, of course, the Blues came when the NHL expanded in 1966. And I got to hear the great Dan Kelly uh, do the Blues games on radio, one of the greatest hockey announcers the sport has ever seen. Longtime voice of Hockey Night in Canada. And uh, Bob Starr, one of the greatest football announcers I ever heard on radio, with a voice that sounds a lot like yours. (laughs) He did the football Cardinals games before they moved to Arizona. So it didn't matter what sport we had. We had great talent in St. Louis, and it was really kind of cool to grow up with all of that because I think it showed me, or at least kind of told me, you know, if you're going to do this, you better be pretty good because those guys were fantastic. Coming up, Washington Nationals broadcaster Bob Carpenter shares some good advice that he learned on the soccer field. Hey, Coach. Hey, Coach Jim, how do you become a great coach? And Alan said, simple answer, good decision. And the guy said, well, how do you make good decisions? And he said, experience. And then the coach said, how do you get experience? And Alan said, bad decisions. You're listening to this podcast because you have an interest in baseball. If you own a business, what do you think people who call you have an interest in? Yeah, your business. So you need a message on hold. Now, tell your callers about your products and services, locations and hours, special offers and more with a message on hold now. We've been providing telephone on hold messages since 1992, and we can do one for you. Get your custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. Messageonholdnow.com. And now back to my conversation with Bob Carpenter, a veteran over 35 years at the ballpark, including ESPN, the Rangers, the Cubs, and now the Nationals. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Bob is one of the top announcers in the game, and now with the World Championship added to your resume, what do you tell young broadcasters when they ask you for advice? I heard a coach, uh, we had a soccer coach in Tulsa with the, the Tulsa Roughneck soccer team way back in the uh, 70s. His name was Alan Hinton. He came over from England. And I was at a clinic with him one night. I was doing PR and radio and TV for the club and all that. And he was doing a coach's clinic. And, and some coach asked him, hey, coach, hey, coach, how do you become a great coach? And Alan said, simple answer, good decisions. And the guy said, well, how do you make good decisions? And he said, experience. And then the coach said, how do you get experience? And Alan said, bad decisions. <laughs> you know, so, so, so there you go. Yeah. You know, from bad to the experience to the good. And, you know, I was on the phone just a little while ago with a young announcer, you know, asking me for advice and everything. And, oh, and I don't great. have any magical advice. You know, I can help guys with the basics of play-by-play. And I try to help them. You know, I said, part of your job is to interview people, too. You have to be a good listener to be a good interviewer. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I tell these guys, there is nothing like experience. When I came out of UMKC in 1976, I thought I was ready to conquer the world. My first job was being a radio news guy in Jonesboro, Arkansas, because that's the only job I could get. It took me several years to get any kind of opportunity to do play-by-play and to do what I wanted to do. And fortunately, those opportunities did come along. But, you know, it's crazy, John, in this business, you try to be patient, but you have to be aggressive, too. And I think all of us are competitive by nature. We want to do this. We want to do that with our career. And it's really tough to wait for those opportunities to come around. I want to be sensitive to the time you've given me. And and let's let's. You know what? Hey, the conversation you and I had earlier about the time of this interview, 
Throw it out the window. I'm uh, having a great time. Well, we'll go as long as you want to do. Well, you're 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 very kind, but I, I I do want to transition obviously into the nationals, because here here you have you know a chance of a lifetime to be a broadcaster for a team that becomes the world champion, and has happened in the most unusual time in baseball history. And if I would have told you on October 30th that we wouldn't be playing a baseball game that counted until July 23rd, none of us would have any idea what that meant. Yeah, and I was around in 1994 doing games for ESPN when the lockout happened, and the, you know the players and the owners agreed not to agree, and uh, you know the season ended, no playoffs, no World Series. ESPN started sending Buck Martinez around to do minor league baseball games. So I've seen kind of the reverse thing, you know, where the season end uh, got two thirds or three fourths of the way through, and then boom, it was gone, and that was a black eye for baseball. In 1995, when I returned to the Cardinals, that was the year the players uh, were still on strike, and the owners had the audacity to try to start the season with replacement players. You know, I came back to St. Louis after being gone for 10 years, and my first couple of spring training games, I'm announcing games involving guys I've never heard of before and knew nothing about them. The the whole thing was that there were one or two ex-big leaguers who were trying to make it back to the game who crossed that line and played in those games. So that, that's about the most bizarre thing I can think of. And then finally, the season started, I think of maybe about the 25th or the 26th of April, something like that. So, you know, we've had those things happen in the past, but nothing like this, where an entire country, an entire world, the entire human race has been affected by the COVID-19 experience and the, uh, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. Just because baseball's restarting doesn't mean we're out of the woods. I mean, a couple of things go wrong, John. This thing could fall apart in a week or two. Yeah. You know, and then you got football. And, you know, baseball's not really a contact sport. I keep wondering to myself, how are they going to do this in football where guys are banging all over each other yeah. and sweating all over each other? Basketball's a contact sport. Yeah. Hockey's a contact sport. I know the NBA's in the bubble. But, you know, even looking forward to next year, have we had our world and our sports landscape change forever? I think so. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had the experience of the baseball announcers now are not going to go on the road? Have you ever had experience in either uh, doing recreations or anything where you were doing the game, but you weren't at the game? Well, maybe when I was a kid, you know, uh, we'd fool around with the tape recorder and here's the pitch to John Frost. And, you know, we do the bat thing. We have, and there's a drive to deep left. We're going, you know, we're doing the crowd noise and all that as John Frost hits a 500-foot homer and circles the bases. You know, we I think we all kind of did that messing around when we were kids. Sure. And first we're fascinated with tape recorders and, and all that stuff. But uh, I've done sports from the studio, not necessarily baseball. In 1982, I did the World Cup from Spain with Bob Lee in the ESPN studios in Connecticut. I was actually the analyst on those soccer games that Bob Lee did play-by-play. And I've done, you know, pre- and post-production things like triathlons and rugby matches and other things, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you'll go back in the studio and uh, kind of put some finishing touches on it. But uh, this is going to be different because when the team's on the road, I'm going to report to my ballpark at Nationals Park here in D.C. every day like I do. Yeah. And then we're going to watch giant monitors in the booth. I'm going to sit there with my scorebook and keep score as if the game's taking place right in front of me. And we're going to try to make the best of it and hope that if we're playing the Atlanta Braves or the Phillies or the Mets, 
we're pretty bitter rivals with all three of those teams. We're going to have to hope that their director and their producer give us at least somewhat of a, I don't know, impartial broadcast so that we can talk about our team as well as uh, seeing pictures and talking about their team. We're going to have one camera at our disposal for those road games, so at least we can request a shot here and there. But that whole thing's going to be really unusual. Well, you're going to have a high fly ball hit center field, and you're not going to know where it goes. Yeah, because when the ball's in the air, I'm reading the outfielder. I'm reading the fans. If there's a ball heading for the bleachers, you know, the fans get on their feet and they're waiting for a home run ball. And on TV, you might be able to see that a little bit. I was talking to a guy on on a radio show today who asked me that very question, and I agreed with him. I said, yeah, we're going to have to be a little more conservative because, as, as you know and any broadcaster does, the cardinal sin in baseball is to call a home run and then it ends up not leaving the ballpark. And you're you're the one who might end up leaving the ballpark. So so yeah, for those road games, we're subject we I, I just tell our fans I'm trying to get them ready for this. Fortunately our first two series are home, three with the Yankees and two with the Blue Jays before the team goes on the road. I just told them, Hey, we're gonna we're gonna be like you guys at home. We're gonna go fan mode and uh, I said, I don't know if we can get a couch in here and sit on the couch or an easy chair like you guys do, but you know, we're going to be watching the game along with you. It's going to be a discovery process along the way, and I think it's going to be very, very interesting. Michael Kay posted a, a, a photo on Twitter the other day when the Yankees were playing the Mets, and of course he was in Yankee Stadium. He was in the press box. Right. The game was at City Field, 16 miles away, and he posted a picture of his view of City Field with the lights in the distance on a game he was calling from Yankee Stadium. Yeah. The only thing more unusual that would be if the polo grounds were still standing and uh, they were literally on the other side of the river <laughs> if the Yankees were playing the old New York Giants yeah. or even playing the Mets at the polo grounds. So, yeah, there will be all kind of unusual things that we will find out about baseball and ourselves and covering baseball during these 60 games, 30 of which I'll be calling off a monitor. But yeah. I'd rather be in my own ballpark in my own booth doing that, sure. which we will. Sure. Instead of sitting in a studio, I talked to my buddy Buck Martinez, who works for the Toronto Blue Jays. They still don't know where they're playing their home, their road game. That's right. Even when they're home, he thinks they're going to be in a studio in Toronto. They're not sure they're going to be in the ballpark. So mm-hmm. uh, that whole thing's going to be crazy. And uh, you know what? Uh, it's a good year for announcers to check your egos at the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, do as good as you can because the bottom line for us and this is my philosophy, and I think it served me well, be nice to the crew, treat the camera guys and the people pulling cable the same as you're treating the producer and the director, who in essence are your supervisors for those games. Work with the crew as best you can. Respect the fans. Know what they expect from you. Give them the game that that you know they deserve. And, uh, you know, check your ego at the door and just think of everybody else and try to make it a great experience for them and then I think it'll work its way through where it'll be a great experience for everybody. Just a couple other questions, and, and then I'll let you go. This has been so fun for me, catching up with you. There's lots of speculation, and it's and it's only speculation, about what in the world is going to happen with a 60-game season. And, and as you know, and I'm sure you've been asked this question dozens of times, the reference point is often the Nationals, because they were the world champion last year, but they also began the season at 19-31 and 31 with the worst record yeah, in baseball. Yeah, nearly a third of the season. Yeah. And last year, you know, that's 50 games. Yeah. A third of the way through the season is 54 games. So 
I did the math. After 50 games, there's 112 games remaining, right? Yep. Well, to get to 90 wins, to have any chance to make the playoffs, the Nationals had to win 71 of those 112 games. Mm-hmm. They went out and won 74 of those 112 games and ended up with 93 wins, got in as the wild card, snuck their way in, and won the whole thing. So, yeah, it's the talk of baseball right now, John, that if you get off to a bad start, yeah. if you lose 10 of your first 15, or if you lose you know, 12 of your first 20, or whatever the number is, it's going to be really difficult. The other mm-hmm. thing, and I've heard some people say this, well, you know, this is a 60-game sprint. It's like a tournament. You know, we could have the Seattle Mariners playing the Pittsburgh Pirates in the World Series. <laughs> now, with all due respect to two great cities and their ballparks and their fans and their players and all that, I think 60 games is enough to weed out the pretenders from the contenders. Mm-hmm. So I don't think any ball club that's in a total rebuilding mode or, you know, lost 100 games last year is suddenly going to become a different animal because it's a shorter season. Now, if it was 20 or 30 games, yeah, it's like the NCAA basketball tournament, March Madness. You know, Valparaiso can beat North Carolina on any night or, you know, something like that. But I think 60 games, which is more than one-third of the season, is enough to weed out the good teams from the not-good teams. Well, it'll be a season like we've never seen before. And congratulations to you for your long and illustrious career and being able to be uh, a broadcaster for a team that wins the World Series. And at least we're being able to talk real baseball now, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, not talking about who's going to be playing you know, left field for the uh, Yankees four months from now. Yep. Now we're talking about two days from now That's or right. even tomorrow night. So That's yeah, right. your points will take, and baseball is here. Hey, John, everybody in the game wants to see this thing through, and uh, hopefully it doesn't fall apart after a certain amount of time if, if things, you know, from a health standpoint, go wrong. But, hey, it's great that baseball's back. I think maybe it'll give the country a lift. I hope it does. I know our fans in D.C. are so psyched. We had a huge audience for the exhibition game on Tuesday night. And here's the, one, here's the other thing. TV executives have to be licking their chops with nobody in these ballparks. Conceivably, that's 28 to 30,000 more households every night that'll be watching the game on your TV network or station than would normally for a home game. And so, uh, you know, this, this could be a big revenue thing for the TV networks and stations as well. Well, Bob Carpenter, thanks so much for spending time with me and uh, sharing about your life at the ballpark. Well, John, it's been great fun. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross in a ballpark or near one sometime very soon. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of life at the ballpark.